the National Archives podcast series. Army Officers' Commissions. Presented by Mark Dunton. In, the, in this talk, um, I'll be referring mostly to the system as it operated in the 19th century, um, particularly the period 1800 to 1871. It'll become clear why it stops in 1871 later. That's all to do with the abolition of the purchase system. And I'm going to uh, begin with some general comments about the political and social aspects. Then I'll move on to look at how the system worked, uh, and that will cover aspects like uh, first appointments and promotions, retirement and exchanges. I'll refer to the payment system and also the activities of the uh, slightly mysterious commission brokers and army agents. Um, I will then refer to some document examples and I would be happy to take uh, any questions at the end. So, officers held their rank by virtue of a royal commission and commissions could be purchased in the guards or and in the regiments of cavalry and infantry. Now, officers in the artillery and the engineers were not part of this system. They entered the army after training at the Royal Military Academy at Woolwich. A word about the um, political and social aspects, a bit of background. Now, um, in the 19th century, the selling of commissions uh, was seen by some as a means of ensuring that the army stayed safely within the political and constitutional framework as stakeholders with a vested interest in the country's fortunes. And um, there's a, a quote I'd like to give from the, uh, the Duke of Wellington. In 1833, he wrote, It is promotion by purchase which brings into the service men of fortune and education, men who have had some connection with the interests and fortunes of the country besides the commission that they hold from His Majesty. It is this circumstance that exempts the British Army from the character of being a mercenary army. Wellington goes on to state that this has rendered the employment of the army safe and beneficial. The purchase system was very much associated with the officer-gentleman tradition. High standards of conduct were seen as essential in order to win the respect of the lower ranks. In a memorandum for the cabinet in 1827, Lord Palmerston wrote about the benefits of filling the higher ranks of the army with men belonging to the aristocracy. He wrote that the commission system tends to place a considerable proportion of them in those higher situations of command where their sentiments, feelings and opinions influence and direct the men who are below them and give a tone and character to the profession at large. The officer corps relied in recruitment from a limited span of society, mostly from the landed classes, though there was some scope for upward mobility. And the purchase system uh, tended to reinforce this recruitment policy. So now let's look at the way the system worked 
focusing first on appointments to first commissions. During the early part of the 19th century, an individual who wished to be considered for a commission made an application to the commander-in-chief through the military secretary, his personal staff officer. If he wished to join the guards or the household cavalry, he had to apply direct to the regiment concerned. The candidate would normally send in a memorial, um, a sort of letter really making out his case, and he would seek supporting references from friends. The military secretary then investigated the candidate's character and his circumstances, and if these were considered satisfactory, the commander-in-chief gave an instruction that the candidate's name be entered into a register for a commission when one became available. He indicated on the list whether or not it was to be obtained by purchase. Now, in theory, whether or not a candidate was required to pay for his first commission was largely at the discretion of the horse guards, who played an important role in the administration of the system. In practice, there were a number of special groups who were given special priority for first commissions without purchase, particularly those cadets at Sandhurst who had been successful in their final examinations. The uh, crucial qualification was the need for the candidate to be a member of the landed class, as I mentioned, or to be approved by them. An application for a commission normally had to be endorsed by the candidate's parents, relatives or patrons, and these were expected to be of high birth. Every officer had to pass what Anthony Bruce has described as an aristocratic test of acceptability. Social connections and influence in high society were all important. This rule tended to be relaxed during wartime and also in the case of sons of long-serving military officers. The use of influence to obtain free commissions became the subject of much adverse comment in the 19th century, and in 1858, Sir Charles Trevelyan criticised, quote, the decree to which the purchase system enables the commander-in-chief to exercise an arbitrary patronage by giving first commissions without purchase. How did promotion work under this system? Well, subject to a number of provisos, every officer had a claim according to seniority to purchase the next highest rank. The authorities were informed of an officer's fitness for promotion by quarterly returns, which were submitted to the horse guards by each corps. And confidential reports on individual performance were also submitted regularly. Now, the seniority rule was, uh, was generally meant to establish the order in which officers could be given the opportunity to purchase, a bit like Buggins' turn, really, but there were exceptions to this. And if an officer was, was uh, bypassed in the promotion stakes by junior officers, it could cause deep resentment, and we'll see a case of that later on. In the mid-19th century, um, you start to get in examination systems being introduced, but my impression is that these had a limited impact, at least initially. Now, a bit more on how the system worked. Vacancies by non-purchase 
peaked during times of war to expand the officer corps or to replace officers who had died. Also, um, there were a number of rules in place. An officer who had obtained a free commission was allowed to retire by selling his commission, provided he'd served for a specified number of years. For example, by 1833, a non-purchase ensign could sell his commission after 12 years' service, and for lieutenants, it was 15 years. Another element of the system was that of exchanges. Officers of equal regimental rank on full pay were permitted to exchange between regiments or be between two battalions of the same corps, subject to a number of conditions. In theory, the payment of any money on exchanging was not allowed, except where there was a difference in value between the two commissions. In practice, however, a further unofficial payment was normally made before an exchange was agreed. And this brings us on to the subject of um, payment of illegal sums. Now, the uh, payment of what were known as over-regulation payments was officially prohibited by an Act of 1809, but the military authorities gradually changed their attitudes during the 19th century and rarely intervened on the matter. It was realised that it was impossible to prevent these payments. One reason was that, naturally enough, when officers requested to sell their commissions, they did not record the cost of any additional payments in their correspondence. So it was very hard to police. And, you know, you, one gets the impression of a whole kind of um, sort of uh, black trade, really, a, a whole sort of um, uh, trading system in these illegal payments. Official tariffs were issued with regard to purchase prices for commissions, and it was pretended that there was some protection for the less well-off. But those tariffs were largely theoretical, and the usual practice when selling a commission was to ask for and to receive considerably more than the official price. And these over-regulation payments could be very high. For example, in the 1860s, the average additional cost of obtaining the rank of Lieutenant Colonel in the Household Cavalry was a staggering £4,570, and in the Infantry, it was 2500 Now, one factor which um, determined the size of additional payment was the desirability of particular stations. Um, for example, India um, had become more attractive by the mid-19th century because of improved pay and advances in communications, and so this had an effect on the additional payments for commissions there. Now let's look at commission brokers and army agents. Now, commission brokers sought to obtain first commissions for their clients by using influence through government ministers or commanding officers. Brokers were often former army officers who made the most of their army links, and they charged fees for their services. They were useful for those who lacked the necessary social connections. The role of brokers really took off during the Napoleonic Wars, to such an extent that the military authorities virtually lost control of the system. 
the activities of brokers were outlawed by the Brokerage Act of 1809 and they were pursued rigorously by the authorities. Army agents, on the other hand, had an official role in the purchase system as they handled the money. In the case of a candidate for a first commission, he would receive an instruction from the military secretary's office that he would be commissioned on payment of the regulation sum to the army agent. Any over-regulation payments normally went into private accounts rather stealthily. Um, once payment had been received, the agent would then inform the military authorities. If the original vacancy had been created by the retirement of an officer, then once, his, once the name of the retired officer, the retiring officer had been announced in the London Gazette, his account was then credited with the money. Army agents also offered loans to officers to enable them to purchase promotion, and of course they received interest on these, as you might expect, and any other monies which were deposited. Turning to the original documents, there are many sequences of these, as a commission or a warrant of appointment is likely to be recorded in several places. It's true that there is a great deal of duplication in the records, and the entries sometimes give minimal information. But um, you know, I don't want to um, <laughs> pour any cold water on the on, on the, how interesting this subject is, because it is possible to find some real gems among the records, as I hope to show. And as we go through um, the examples, I'll point, try to point out particular aspects which show, which illustrate the ways in which the system worked. Now, the first few examples come from the series of records WO25. The first example is from a commission book kept by the Secretary at War and the Secretary of State for War. And if you look at the heading, it says, uh, List of promotions humbly submitted for His Majesty's approbation in the Army in North America under the command of General Sir Henry Clinton, KB, and is dated New York, 26th of September, 1781. Referring to the American War of Independence, this was the time of the Yorktown campaign, which was so disastrous for the British. If you look under the 23rd Regiment, the entry reads, Adjutant George Watson to be Second Lieutenant Vice Robinson killed, 16th of March, 1781, and there is a fee recorded of three pounds and eight shillings. So visa in this context means, of course, in place of, and here we see evidence of vacancies being opened up by death in time of war. And now we're looking at a later entry from this same sequence of commission books, another WO25. And this entry is a streamlined list with minimal information, as you can see. For example, at the top of the page, Charles Cameron is confirmed as captain in the 26th Regiment of Foot on the 31st of July, 1846. And General Gray has approved the commission. This volume has its own internal index to help you find people within it. Incidentally, the 26th Regiment of Foot is known as the Cameronian Regiment, and perhaps this had some bearing on Charles Cameron's promotion, 
or maybe it was just coincidence. Now the next example also shows an entry relating to Charles Cameron and it's from a notification book kept by the Secretary at War, another War Office WO25 record. You can see from this how the exchange system, which I mentioned earlier, has worked in the case of Charles Cameron. Under the 26th foot, it reads, Brevet Major James Patterson to be Major without purchase, visa WJD Durban, who retires on half pay, Lieutenant Charles Cameron to be Captain, visa Patterson. Now, these entries are dated 31st of July, 1846. And these sort of entries, well, they're, they're quite interesting. But if you're searching for an individual, it is only fair to point out that you could bypass the originals and obtain much of this information from the army lists, the printed army lists. You're likely to find these more convenient as we have a set on the shelves in our microfilm reading room. And here we see an example from the army list for 1847, and it's the listing for the 26th Regiment of Foot. And as you can see, James Patterson, which we mentioned just now, he is recorded there as Major, and Charles Cameron as Captain, both men recorded for that rank on the 31st of July, 1846. Now notice that there are two columns. There's rank in the regiment and rank in the army. And rank in the army is known as a brevet title. In practice, this means the date that you received the rank without receiving the money. The regiment column signifies when the vacancy became available in the regiment. So, you know, if your name was sort of top of the list, then, you know, that's when you would start your effective starting date for being paid in your new rank. But better still than the army list, in a number of ways, is Hart's army list. And um, Lieutenant General Henry Hart started an unofficial army list in February 1839, partly to fulfill the need for a record of officers' war services, which he felt was inadequately covered in the official army list. And we've got an incomplete set of these lists from 1840 to 1882 in the microfilm reading room. If you look at this example, um, you'll see what a wonderful source Hart's army list is, as it brings together the dates that individuals receive their commissions in all their different ranks in a most convenient tabular form with useful footnotes such as the one for Captain Charles Cameron marked number nine and um, this shows uh, that you know this talks about his service in the China expedition for which he received a medal. Now the next example is taken from a notification book of the Secretary at War in the series WO4, and I'm just going to read it. Um, Mr. Morse presents his compliments to Mr. Collins, and in, in, in answer to his note of yesterday, begs leave to acquaint him that it appears that eight pounds and 17 shillings was paid in November 1796 
by Messrs Cox and Greenwood on the commission of Major Barrow of the 1st West India Regiment, Duke Street, 28th of August, 1807. So just looking at this, Mr Morse is employed by the War Office, as he's the representative of the Secretary at War. And so he is informing Mr Collins, who I believe is a representative of the Paymaster, that the official army agents, whose names are Mrs Cox and Greenwood, have paid the required fee on the commission of Major Barrow. So there we see the system at work. And that figure of £8.17 shillings for the commission of Major also appears on this table of fees payable on army and regimental commissions prior to Christmas 1797, which comes from the same document. One, get, one gets an impression of, you know, just how, if you'll forgive the pun, how regimented <laughs> this system was. Now we're going to move on to look at the uh, Commander-in-Chief's papers. Now, um, these are applications to purchase and sell commissions. They're arranged chronologically, usually in monthly bundles, by date of appointment or promotion, as announced in the London Gazette which you can normally obtain from the army lists. Now, the uh, Commander-in-Chief papers in WO31 are difficult to use as they're normally produced in tightly bound bundles. And it can be a tricky business to find um, an individual, but they do contain a treasure trove of information. The applications may shed considerable extra light on the personal circumstances of the individual concerned. The supporting documents often contain statements of service, certificates of baptism, and letters of recommendation. There are hundreds and hundreds of interesting stories waiting to be discovered in these documents. I suppose that's true of the public records as a whole, but I think it's, it's also particularly true of this series. And they give real insights into the way in which the purchase system worked and the attitudes of the time. A good example of this is the case of Ensign William Grindley of the 43rd Regiment. And I just want to relay this to you, because I think it's quite an interesting story. On the 10th of August, 1822, J. Harris, Lieutenant Adjutant of the 43rd Regiment, writes to Ensign Grindley to inform him that there will be a lieutenancy vacant by purchase for the regulation difference and that your name has been inserted as the first of your rank for purchase. That's that seniority rule that I mentioned earlier, the sort of buggins turn nature of things. So I suppose, you know, obviously his hopes must have been raised as he read that. Uh, but uh, he goes on to say, in consequence of Colonel Patrick, sorry, in consequence of Colonel Patrickson's confidential report, on you to Colonel Thornton at the last half-yearly inspection at Limerick and the additional circumstance of your being incapable from ill health of doing duty with the regiment, the commanding officer, here is where his hopes are crushed, the commanding officer did not consider it consistent with his duty to recommend you for the vacancy. 
as it is so necessary that everyone should be effective, particularly as the regiment is ordered for foreign service. But William Grindley wasn't going to take that lying down. Uh, his reaction was to contest the decision. And in the WO31 bundle, there are several copies of letters going backwards and forwards on the subject. William Grindley complains in a memorial about the fact that two officers, much junior to himself, have been allowed to purchase in his stead. He glosses over the reference to ill health, referring to a temporary indisposition. Actually, these, these letters are beautifully phrased. Um, I find them really interesting. He asked to see a copy of Colonel Patrickson's confidential report, but Patrickson refuses, saying that the reports are strictly confidential. And, you know, you don't really have to read too far between the lines to see that there's a history of some bad feeling between Patrickson and Grindley. Uh, there's a reference to Grindley being arrested at one point, and Grindley refers to, quote, the repeated wish of Colonel Patrickson of removing me from the regiment. Colonel Patrickson blocks Grindley's leave requests. Grindley is very persistent. And on this, on this slide, we see J. Harris, Harris's reply to one of his letters. In answer to your letter of the 5th of November, addressed to C Lieutenant Colonel Haverfield, I am directed by him to inform you that he is not aware that your character as a gentleman or as a man of honour has been called into question or alluded to, either in Colonel Patrickson's first report at the half-yearly inspection on May last, or in the letter written by Lieutenant Colonel Haverfield. It goes on. But Colonel Patrickson confined himself entirely to a statement of your being unfit for active service from an unfortunate injury that you received from a fall from a horse, and your general inefficiency as an officer as the result of an impaired constitution. Again, phrasing is great, and I love the uh, neatness as well of the, the handwriting. But all's well that ends well, because uh, it appears that Ensign Grindley was allowed to purchase a lieutenancy after all, as this document reveals, the sum of £250 has been lodged for the purchase of a lieutenancy for Ensign Grindley of the 43rd Regiment, and this happened in March 1823. So Grindley's persistence must have paid off. Perhaps they just wanted to shut him up. Now, um, this uh, entry from the document WO103, Submissions for Royal Approval, is a book recording appointments of officers for 1809. And you can see that it is actually signed by George III. You know, I've looked through this huge document, and he, you know, he is individually signing every page. And there's an interesting story attached to Colonel John Hamilton of the uh, 81st Regiment of Foot, who appears at the top of this page. He's to be a major general in the army as of the 25th of October, 1809. And his last post was that of Colonel of the 69th Regiment of Foot. He died on December the 24th, 1835, aged 80. His widow wrote to the War Office claiming that he had served 
64 years without taking leave. This seems incredible, but a check in the army lists does bear this out. And I believe that his widow was duly granted a pension. Quite a staggering length of service. Now, abolition of the purchase system. By the, uh, the mid-19th century, there was a growing criticism of the purchase system in Parliament. A key criticism was the sheer unfairness of the system. As we've seen, the over-regulation fees could be very high. If you were very rich, you could enjoy rapid promotion, but the less wealthy had to wait for an opportunity for promotion without purchase. And these often cropped up, guess where? In campaigns with a high death rate or in tropical, tropical parts of the world with high rates of disease. Continuing with the theme of fairness, if an officer died in service, he forfeited his commission to the crown. Thus, his financial investment would have been lost and his, none of his relatives would have gained at all. Parliamentary critics were also concerned about levels of competence. You were rich, you'd enjoyed rapid promotion, but were you truly competent to perform your duties at the rank in question? In 1856, a royal commission was appointed to investigate the purchase system, and a key figure calling for reform was the Assistant Secretary to the Treasury, Sir Charles Trevelyan, who wanted to abolish the system and wanted a wider recruitment intake for officers, with a greater proportion coming from the middle classes. The Army Regulation Bill in 1871 declared that no money, whether it was set at regulation or over-regulation levels, should in future be paid for commissions. This was reinforced by a royal warrant of the same year. It was a radical measure. It did put a stop to the purchase of commissions. Henceforth, commissions were obtained through selection, mostly through examinations. But it's also true that you still needed a sizable private income to maintain the expensive lifestyle associated with being an officer. The whole social life associated with the officer's mess and activities such as hunting, you were even expected to provide your own uniform. And despite Trevelyan's intentions, officer recruitment continued to be largely restricted to the upper classes. Thank you. That concludes my talk. Thank you. This event was recorded live on November the 20th, 2007, at the National Archives at Kew. This podcast is copyright the National Archives, all rights reserved. 